Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on technology and science. And coming up on this week's show, the rise of robotic laboratories. It's kind of the idea behind these foundries is that they're reproducible and that a new life form could become a commodity. Is there life in the Atacama Desert? The Atacama is quite popular among space researchers and astrobiologists and the people at NASA because it's more or less the closest thing we have on this planet to the surface of Mars. But first, the world of driverless cars is fast approaching. Waymo, the self-driving car unit of Alphabet, the parent of Google, plans to begin a robo-taxi service in Phoenix, Arizona later this year. But there is a danger that this new technology, while solving some problems, also unleashes new worries. To discuss this, I'm joined by Tom Stanage, the deputy editor at The Economist. Tom, let's first start with the basics. Realistically, when can we expect to see self-driving cars? Well, they're on the roads now. So if you're driving around in Mountain View or in Pittsburgh or in uh, parts of Phoenix, uh, you'll see them and quite a few cities actually in the US, which has essentially the most laissez-faire attitude to these things, which is you can test them provided you need licenses in some states, but provided you take responsibility for them um, and uh, sort of assume legal liability for them. So the real question is, when will they be able to carry people in really large numbers? At the moment, they could drive well in regular cities where there's good weather, which is why Phoenix, Arizona is a very popular place to test these things. Um, so I think what we'll, we'll see is we'll we'll see commercial service from Waymo this year. GM is talking about launching a robo-taxi service next year. And what will gradually happen is that the areas that these services, these robo-taxi services cover will increase and the number of cities where they're operating will go up and there will be lots of experimentation around this. And then I think starting around sort of 2025, you'll see quite large-scale deployment. So let's look at these this bigger picture because I'm captivated by the idea that while it solves some of these problems, it unleashes others. What are the problems? Well, one of the concerns that people have already raised is that these cars are going to know a great deal about their riders. And this is already the case with Uber. So Uber, a few years ago, famously did an analysis where it worked out from the rider data that it had of who went to which neighborhood at what time of day, whether they'd ever been there before, whether they, what time of day they came back. It essentially data mined all of that and found all the one night stands. And they wrote this jokey blog post about it. And everyone went nuts and I'm said, terrified. what are you doing? And so they, they took it down and they thought that it was quite funny, but they realized that this was was revealing just how much information they have about people. Now, clearly, people who use Uber, they'll probably use other methods of transport as well. But if you've got robo-taxis, which are sort of blurring the distinction between private cars and public transport, and you start taking them everywhere, then they're really going to know a lot more about you. So that's that's a, a concern that sort of follows on from what we have already. They're also going to film uh, everything that happens inside and around them. They'll fill, film everything inside them for security reasons. If I'm sending little Johnny to school in a robo-taxi, I'm going to want to see that he's okay. And also, if, I'm, if I throw up 
in a robo taxi, they're going to want to, you know, pay me to, because it's going to have to drive to a depot and get cleaned. And then, you know, so they're going to want to, to, to find me for that or something like that. I don't know how that's going to work. Um, they're also going to film everything going on around them for safety reasons, because, you know, they need to make sure if there's an accident that they can show what happened. And uh, so to start with, at least, I mean, these cars are doing this now. And when people do crash into, uh, into autonomous cars, when they're being tested and they say, oh, well, uh, this is what happened. And then they go, well, actually, this is what happened because we've got, you know, 500 <laughs> <laughs> cameras on this thing pointing in different directions. I mean, it really are. They're covered in sensors, these things. So what that means is you've got a kind of massive moving panopticon that all of the robo taxis in a city are looking at everything that happens all the time. And you couple that with facial recognition and you can see that in the hands of an authoritarian government, this is really quite scary. It's kind of like the CCTV situation now, only more so. And when a crime is committed, the first thing the police will do is go to the um, fleet operators and say, did your cars see anything? The Economist spoke to Chanel Hart, an architectural designer who is writing a book about the urban impact of automated vehicles. Let's hear from her now. I mean, I think that the way that we'll navigate spaces when we're in automated vehicles will change since our existing concept of a map might no longer be as relevant as navigating different locations in terms of time or abstract concepts such as traveling to any coffee shop, regardless of where it is, since if we're not manually navigating through physical space um, by driving or riding on a transit system, then we'll no longer pay as much conscious attention to our physical surroundings, and it would become easier for certain places that we go past to be removed in a layer of digital abstraction, and we might past certain spaces without necessarily being aware of their existence unless they're connected on the digital network that we use to access them through our automated vehicles. Tom, this sounds rather bleak, and I'm not certain if I believe it. In fact, I could imagine I'll be looking out the window quite a bit and sort of musing upon the landscape rather than believing that I'm in some sort of video game and actually not caring about where I am. What do you think? When I spoke to Chanel, I was very intrigued. She had some really, really interesting ideas about how this will sort of change the way we think about things. I think, firstly, when you're in one of these vehicles, you're probably going to be seeing ads. So, um, <laughs> uh, or, at least, or at least you'll have ad-subsidized rides and you'll have to pay more to turn the ads off and look at the window. But I think the point she's making there is that, you know, we already navigate some in some ways using abstraction. And her point is that when coffee shops can move around, when they go to the business district in the morning and the entertainment district in the evening, and you get into an autonomous car and say, take me to that coffee shop or take me to that clothes shop, it may actually drive you to another thing that's moving. And exactly where that is physically kind of no longer matters as, as much to you as it did. So I think that's the sort of thing she's getting at. She also suggested rather um, interestingly, rather provocatively, um, that we might need a sort of net neutrality for roads. Because if you start to have some robo-taxi fleets able to go to some places and not others, then you open the door to all sorts of segregation and, and discrimination. Tom, I don't fully believe it. So let me press you on this. We can already drive. We could already have the moving coffee van. In fact, we do. We already could have a moving store. We don't. Why should driverless cars unleash these changes? Well, because they would allow you to have things that move around in ways that they currently don't. So you could start to have things that are actually moving buildings. I mean, an autonomous vehicle could take many shapes and sizes, and we, we already see that. But imagine, for example, if you wanted to do your workout on the way to work, then you might have an AV that picks you up that has all the gym equipment in it and your trainer ready to go. Or you might have your nails done, or you might see your therapist. I mean, there are all sorts of things you can do while you're using that time when you're not driving. Um, and when you can automate and route the things in ways that are much more clever 
clever than than you can at the moment. It does open up new possibilities. You know, I go back to my main point that we need to we need to go into this aware of the fact that this is more than just a transport technology. This has the potential to shake up how things move around in the world as much as the internet shook up how data moves around. And so we need to kind of be alive to the fact that there are going to be far-reaching social consequences to these sorts of things, and they're not just a transport technology. Tom, thank you. This is fascinating. Thank you. Next, genetic research foundries are growing around the world, offering a new way to centralize the work of genetic engineering research. One of these biofoundries is Transcriptic in Silicon Valley. The economist spoke on the phone to its CEO, Yvonne Linney, about just how the company came about. The company was founded six years ago by Max Hodak, and he was still an undergrad at Duke University when he started the company. He was actually doing an internship in a biology lab, and part of his work involved him having to get up in the middle of the night, go to the lab, do five minutes of work, and then go back to his room. And he's thinking there must be another way of being able to do this. And so the concept of the remote lab, the robotic lab, was born. And so um, after Matt's graduated, he started to build some components of connecting instruments together and being able to run those remotely. So the company has evolved from that. He founded Transcriptic, and we've built on that basis So the world of RoboCop has changed to the world of the RoboChemist. And joining me in the studio to look at these biofoundries is Hal Hodson, our technology correspondent. Hello, Hal. How are you doing, Ken? Hal, what are these new foundries and what is it that they offer? So the word foundry originally meant a place where you cast metal. You pour molten metal into sort of molds made out of sand and you get out your, your metal, you know, bowl or a piece of equipment to, to put in your factory and burn coal and all kinds of messy things. These foundries are about doing the same thing but with bits of DNA. And the idea is that it's a combination of laboratory robots, which are just basically big white boxes that do sort of one specific biochemical task very, very quickly, and code, which your customers can send in in order to instruct this room full of robots sort of to come together in harmony and build this new life form for you that might, say, spit out a drug that you need or a particular chemical that you need. So the first inventive step is just simply that we can automate what chemists have always done. Yeah, exactly. There's um, one of these machines is a, a, you could call it acoustic titration. And what that really means is using sound waves to move tiny, tiny volumes of liquid with tiny, tiny snippets of DNA in them between tiny, tiny test tubes. And because you automate this, you are able to do this on a big scale. Hal, let's hear from Yvonne Linney again about the processes and protocols of gene editing and how these biofoundries can help out. One of the things that we've done within our the, the transcriptic operating system is we basically convert all those protocols to code. And so they are now sort of protocols that are within our web application and can be called up by any scientist from anywhere in the world to basically be able to run that particular protocol from their office, wherever they are. And it's run in our cloud lab, which is a mainly robotic, but completely linked interface of liquid handlers, analytical devices, 
and humans who do part of the work as well, but all under the same instruction. So it's very, very reproducible, which obviously speeds up the overall experimental research and, uh, and produces a lot greater success on a, on a routine basis. So what Yvonne Linney is saying is two things. One, that we can automate it and so we can be more accurate, but also that we can automate it and therefore reproduce other experiments so that we get a benefit to science itself. Exactly. Now, in the case of not transcriptic, but a similar operation in London called the London DNA Foundry, what that means is take, starting with DNA parts. And these are sort of little snippets of code that you can combine in myriad ways and turn into full circuits which do something when they're put into a cell. And what the protocol means is that step-by-step process of taking them out of the fridge, mixing them in all the right proportions into the right test tubes. Then you've got your array of slightly different little genetic circuits that are all supposed to do a slightly different thing. And then you test them. The, one of the advantages of taking the human out of the loop is that it becomes easier easier to do reproducible experiments and even sort of to make things in a reliably reproducible way. And when you go back to the foundries of the past with metal, that was one of the great things about this sort of standardization and industrialization of the process, which is that instead of metal being a kind of dude with a hammer, you know, there's a horse in the background smacking away at this glowing lump of metal. This became, you know, a a commodity, you know, a piece of metal could be a commodity. And that's kind of the idea behind these foundries is that they're reproducible and that a new life form could become a commodity. I think you might need to expand a bit on that. So, I mean, life forms are already commodities. You know, cows are commodities, chickens are commodities. Are you and I a commodity? Well, it depends on who you ask. Fair point. But the idea here is that you can use, you know, the fundamental unit of life, a cell, to start to make stuff in a way that is much more flexible than what we've been able to do before. We're moving into a world where we're going to be able to reliably make an organism that makes what we need it to make. So instead of having to figure out how to make leather from skin, we're going to be able to make an organism that makes something we need. Sounds great. Look, Hal, thank you very much. Cheers, Ken. If you have any thoughts about self-driving cars or robot laboratories, we want to hear from you. Please email us at radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. This week, we're giving away the book by the celebrated physicist Michio Kaku. The book is The Future of Humanity, Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immorality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth. These are pretty rich topics, and all you need to do to get the book is email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, to South America and the Atacama Desert in Chile. With an average rainfall in some places of a millimeter or two, it is Earth's driest desert. That's not including the poles. But are there any signs of life? I'm joined by Tim Cross, our science correspondent, who has been looking under all the rocks to find traces of living things. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, the Atacama Desert, not the ideal holiday location. Possibly not. It, as you said, is the driest desert in the world unless you count the poles. There are some weather stations in the desert that have never, ever seen even a single drop of water. Why and how are we looking for signs of life there? Well, it's one of the big questions about just how durable and resilient life is. So in the past 30 years or so, we've 
uncovered this whole new category of organisms that we've called extremophiles, which are things mostly single-celled organisms, bacteria or fungi, things like that, that are able to survive in environments that look pretty inhospitable. So very high temperatures, you know, extremely high pressure on the bottom of the seafloor, really, really salty lakes that nothing normal could, could endure. And the Atacama is a good place to look for things that are resistant to drought. So what will we learn from these extremophiles that might or might not be at the Atacama Desert? Well, so the scientists knew that there was evidence of life in the Atacama already. So um, the Atacama is a big place. Some of the slightly less arid parts have animals and plants living in them, but there are bits of the desert that are extremely dry. And previously, we've seen evidence of single-celled organisms there. But what no one was sure was whether these were actually natives living there or whether they were just bacterial corpses that had been blown there by the wind because bacteria being very small and very light, they get blown around the world by winds. The assumption is that they are native and that they've evolved the ability to deal with this almost complete lack of water by sort of hiding in dormancy for years and years and years, a bit like flowers do in deserts. You know, after a rainstorm, you'll see all these flowers bloom and then a few days later, they're all dead and gone again. The same thing, but, you know, even drier than that and on the tiniest of scales. Hey, so I've got an idea. We go to Mars, bring water, sprinkle the watering can around, see if anything grows. And Well, so this actually is one of the reasons for doing this research. So it's interesting in its own right to find out the limits of what life can endure. But the Atacama is quite popular among space researchers and astrobiologists and the people at NASA because it's more or less the closest thing we have on this planet to the surface of Mars. And we know from all the evidence we've gathered from all the probes we've sent so far that billions of years ago, Mars was a much worse place than it is now. It had seas and probably weather, all kinds of stuff. So if, as some people think, those conditions were quite friendly for life, and if life maybe did evolve, then this suggests that it's not impossible that even though Mars now is a sort of arid wasteland, life might not have found a way to sort of cling on, probably buried under the soil somewhere, waiting for water to come back. And we do have data from recent missions suggesting that occasionally you do get liquid water flowing on the surface of Mars. So this is a sort of small point in favour of people who think, well, it's just about possible there might still be life there. This strengthens the case slightly. Tim, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And that's all for this edition of Babbage from Life on Mars to the book we're giving away about living on Mars. Don't forget to pick up this week's issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.